0: Okay, good to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you help us to understand your word. We pray that it's really urgent that we understand your word because of the world that we live in. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Okay, I think it's very important that we always have a right expectation and understanding of things. Because if we don't have the right expectation and understanding, it leads to disappointment, uh, disillusionment and discouragement. I think all the more in the Christian life, we need to know what to expect, and we need to know and understand what is going to happen, especially about the world that we live in, about our own faith, and about God. Because I often hear of young Christians who have the wrong understanding and wrong expectation of the Christian life. They think that as I become a Christian, everything will start becoming easier and easier, and maybe they have the wrong idea that uh, if I have strong enough faith, God will give me what I ask for. Now today as we look at this passage, I think that I want to say that um, many people who have this sort of wrong idea or wrong expectation have so because they don't really have a connection to God's Word. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's Word and we're going to see how God's Word actually shapes our understanding of our expectations and our understanding of the world that we live in, our own faith and of God. Now it begins uh, <clears throat> today. In chapter 3, but actually chapter 3 is actually intimately linked with chapter 1 and 2. Now in chapter 1, we saw how Daniel and his three friends uh left uh Jerusalem. Actually, they were forcibly taken from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. Right. So if you remember the map up here, they were taken from Jerusalem after the fall of uh, Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and they were brought forcibly to Babylon together with many, many, uh, I guess, chosen people of nations. And there they had a real challenge in terms of their faith. And their identity, okay, their faith and their identity were being challenged because they were given new names, new names of pagan gods, new education which had nothing to do with God at all. They were given new jobs in the Babylonian civil service and they were given a new environment where they had to eat the king's food and drink his wine. And then in chapter 1 we saw how they drew the line and said, okay, we will not eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. And God had granted them favour with the chief eunuch, who was appointed to look after them, and he allowed them to eat their own food. Moreover, God gave them favor because he made them 10 times uh, smarter, I suppose, than all the other uh, people around them, and they did really well in their exams. And last week, it ended up on this really positive note because God had uh, given uh, Daniel the wisdom to see the the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and to interpret it. So last week, it ended like this, right, in verse 46, it's up here. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, if you wanted to believe uh, the prosperity gospel, right, or apply the prosperity gospel, you'll say, wow, these guys, uh, they were really blessed by God. You see, they were faithful, and God blessed them, you see. They were smarter than everybody else. They became more successful. And because God had blessed them, Uh, The people around them wanted to worship God just like they did because they wanted to be clever and successful like them. But I think that that's not really uh, the right way of understanding it because as you come to Genesis, uh, sorry, not Genesis, Daniel chapter 3, we'll see that the the narrative changes, right? Because in spite of King Nebuchadnezzar falling down, acknowledging God as very powerful, as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, here we see in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar reverts back to who he was in the beginning. So in chapter 3 verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Now here he builds this tremendous image of gold. And we're not talking about small image, right? 60 cubits apparently uh, was like 8 stories high. So we are in a building now, which is like about two stories high, right? So imagine this statue, tremendous statue of gold, four times the height of this building. That's a a really, really big monument, right? Okay. Now, where did King Nebuchadnezzar get the idea for building this uh, great image? Where, Where did it come into his mind? Well, it may have been From chapter 2, isn't it? His original dream. Because in chapter 2, remember, in his dream, what did he see? He saw a large statue. An enormous statue. And it was dazzling in image. It was awesome in appearance. And it was made with a head of gold. And remember, uh, the next slide, in the interpretation that uh, Daniel brought from God, to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of gold? It was Nebuchadnezzar. So I think in many ways this image, even though it may not have looked like Nebuchadnezzar, was meant to represent in some way the rule and the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. It was made of gold, this awesome dazzling image. And why? Why did Nebuchadnezzar want it to be made? He wanted it to be made because he wanted all the peoples, the varied peoples who worship different gods from different cultures and different nations, to come before it and to bow down before it, and to give it absolute allegiance and authority. And more than that, not just allegiance, but to worship it. Not just a secular authority, but a religious authority in their life. Now I think that in many ways, um, here as we look at this passage, um the three Jews, the God-fearing Jews, may not have any had any problems with giving, uh, they're dedicating their allegiance and loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. But here we see that actually King Nebuchadnezzar was asking for far more than just their loyalty to him personally. He wanted everything. He wanted their hearts and their minds. And he wanted them, these three Jews, together with everybody else, to give them Total authority over his life. Now, verse 8 goes on to tell us that uh, things became increasingly difficult uh, for these three Jews, Cedric, Meshach and Abednego, because at the same time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your Majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Cedric, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your Majesty, and neither serve your gods Worship the image of God you have set up. Now here, uh, when it says here uh, about the playing of all these instruments, right? I don't think that you know they're playing some orchestral, mu- you know, like really, really nice music. I think basically it's a bit like you know a national day when you have all the civil defense sirens going off, right? And that's like the signal where okay, the national anthem is being played. Can everybody please stand up now? It was the same thing, right? When every instrument in the in the kingdom was to be played, everybody was to bow down before this eight-story gold statue. Now, Cedric, Meshach, Abednego, they probably didn't do that. They were going about their own business and they thought that maybe they would just be, you know, go under the radar. But these astrologers, who their colleagues, or maybe even people who were working under them, they uh, daubed them in, right? They came to uh King Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, you know, These three God-fearing Jews, they don't want to do what you have told them to do. Now, this would be a bit of a surprise to us after we read chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, remember, Daniel, when he had interpreted and revealed the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, he requested that the wise men not be executed. Now, if Daniel and his three friends uh, wanted to be, uh, I guess, selfish, they want to get rid of all the competition, it wasn't good enough just to be 10 times smarter, but just get rid of everybody, they would have said, well, look, just get rid of them. They're useless, right? They're go- these gods, they can't help you. Just keep us and kill the rest. But Daniel didn't do that. Daniel, and his three friends said, do not execute the wise men. Now, for someone reading this passage, you might have hoped that this, this act of kindness by Daniel and his friends might have resulted in goodwill maybe favor, thankfulness, gratefulness from the people that they were colleagues with in some senses. Right? After all, they're all in the same civil service. right? But in the end, it only led to jealousy, envy, and resentment. Because these people, even though they were saved by what Daniel did, uh, resented the fact that God had made these four God-fearing Jews smarter than everybody else that they got promoted and now they were over them and that their own gods were seen to be weaker. And it wasn't enough for them to say, well, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, why don't you just demote them or maybe you know, make them non-graduate civil servants or something, right? He, They wanted to make sure that they got rid of them once and for all. And if you look at very closely at verse 12, you'll see that they're actually painting King Nebuchadnezzar into a corner where he is forced to act against them. See, look at what it says. It says, look, there are some Jews and you've set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Like These people are so visible. You've got to act against them. If not, other people will take their lead and they won't bow down before this image that you've made as well. But they make it very personal, right? Because they say, they pay no attention to you, O Majesty. They neither serve your God's worship the image of gold, you have set up. So by doing so, um, they make it very, very personal where King Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't do something, they are disrespecting you. Right? you got to do something here. These people don't respect you. Now I think that as we <clears throat> look at this passage, if you are a Jew, you're reading this passage and you're reading chapter 1 or 2, or maybe you're a Christian, reading chapter 1 or 2, you might sort of be thinking, well, you know, life is pretty good in the end, you know, as you're a Christian. Uh, God is going to give you favor and allow you to make your stand in society. He's going to bless you with success. And because you're very successful, uh, God is going to help you evangelize people because the world is going to see how successful you are and how blessed you are by God. And they're going to want that. And actually, if you go to some prosperity gospel churches, that's exactly what they will say. They will say, when you believe in God, God will make you exceedingly successful. And the the world will see how successful you are, and they'll want what you have, and so they will become Christian. Well, I don't think that is what is the right view of the world. I think that's the wrong expectation and the wrong understanding of the world. Because the world will always have its Nebuchadnezzar's and the world will always have its astrologers. Where as we seek to live peaceful and quiet lives faithfully before God, the world will still require us to give its, give us, require of us its full and absolute allegiance. See, think of, um, Daniel and his three friends, they were very hardworking and loyal towards King Nebuchadnezzar. They were probably loyal to the Babylonian Empire. But it wasn't enough. Right? What the Babylonian Empire, what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted of Daniel and his three friends was not just their labor or even the loyalty to the kingdom. They wanted their hearts and their minds. They wanted their absolute loyalty not a delegated authority under God. And I think that's a reality check for us because that is the nature of the world around us. See, if you look here at 1 Timothy chapter 2, God actually tells us to pray, uh, especially for those kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And as we do so, we, we can actually evangelize and we can actually bring people to the knowledge of the truth. But as much as we want to live quiet lives and peaceful lives, just as Daniel and his three friends, the reality is the world will not be content with, the, I guess, our good lives. We may be as peaceful, as good in the world as we can try to be. We can be as successful as we can be. We can be as good workers in our companies. We can be as good neighbors as possible, but the world will still demand more. It will demand our hearts and our minds. And that's why Jesus warned his followers right, in John chapter 15, that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. You see, when we live in the world, we have to realize that we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We live in the world, but we do not belong to the world. We belong to Jesus Christ. We've been chosen out of this world. And because of that, We can never give our hearts and our minds and our total allegiance to this world. And because of that, there will be times where the world will hate us. It will put pressure on us. It will persecute us. But what this passage is telling us is that that is the way the world is. We, We will never be part of this world. We will never be loved by the world unless we give all of ourselves to the world, which is impossible because we belong to Jesus Christ. In the same way, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego knew very clearly that they could never bow down and worship this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. So it goes on to say in verse 13, <clears throat> Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Sedrak Meshach, and Nebuchadnezzar, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the lute, the sitha, and all these kinds of music, all the musical instruments that were played, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand Cedric Meshach and Abednego replied to him King Nebuchadnezzar we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we are thrown into the blazing furnace the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand but even if he does not We want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego knew very clearly that they could not, would not, ever bow down before the idol that the king had made. You see, in Exodus chapter 20, God had told the Israelites very, very clearly right, through the Ten Commandments That he was the Lord, their God, who had brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, on the waters below. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, here came... King Nebuchadnezzar threatens them with the ultimate sanction, right? Not money, not job, not career, but life itself. Notice what he says, that immediately you'll be thrown into the blazing furnace. And he challenges them. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, what he was saying was, I am so powerful, I am like God, I am greater than God himself why will you not bow down to me because I have power over you? And I'm sure that for, for ourselves as we, we, we look at this passage, we can sort of see the reality that they were facing, right? That many times in this world there would be forces which seem greater, more imposing and more powerful than God Himself. And that's what's happening here. He's saying, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Here you are, my kingdom, the greatest city, in the world before me with my army with all these people before me and the fires here, who is going to rescue you? Well, notice what Cedric, Meshach, and Nebuchadnezzar say King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And what he's saying, what they are saying, is that they are not here to argue against King Nebuchadnezzar. Because in their heart and their mind they know. That God is able to save them. And this is the heart of the passage. They know with absolute faith that God is a saving God. And they know that because they already know that God had done the mighty acts of saving Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? When we read the Ten Commandments, that part. And in chapter 2, just previously, we don't know when this would have happened. If you look up here in the slide, remember when. God had revealed the dream of Nebuchadnezzar to them. They had praised God, together with Daniel, that God was a God of wisdom and of power. So they had a very strong faith that God was able to save. But you notice here in this passage in verse 18, that they say that even if he does not save, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, this is the right understanding of a biblical, godly faith. It is a faith which is dependent on the previous acts of God which reveal the nature of God. See, the faith of, uh, of these three godly Jews was not that God would save over and over and over and over again in that present time, they knew that God was a saving God because He had already shown His salvation in the past. I think this is very important because for many of us, our faith today can sometimes, in many situations, be tempted to think that if I believe enough, if I just believe fervently enough, God will answer my prayers. If he doesn't answer my prayers, then there must be something wrong with my faith or must be something wrong with God. But actually, if you look here, the faith that Cedric, Meshach and Abednego display is that they have a faith which is not dependent on God saving again and again and again or acting again and again and again in that present moment, but they have a strong faith because of what they know of God because of what he has done in the past. See, there's nothing wrong with my faith if, let's say, I'm really sick and I have some terminal illness and and I'm going to die, right? And I pray really hard and you all pray really hard and I still die. Does that mean that our faith wasn't strong enough? Does that mean that God couldn't save me? No, because we know that God is a saving God because He already has saved in the past and especially because Jesus Christ died and rose again. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with our faith because God might have chosen not to answer our prayers. And this is the same thing which Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are facing. They say that even if God doesn't answer, even if God doesn't save them, we will not bow down because we still believe in God as a saving God. See, we must not be like, uh, I remember this preacher was preaching about how God is like uh, someone who must answer our prayers. So someone was saying, oh, you know the reason why God hasn't given you the house that you've asked for? Because you haven't been specific enough in your prayers. You haven't named the street or the type of house you're looking for. Or I remember someone was showing me in a devotional where we must demand of God that He answers our prayers. See, for these three God-fearing Jews, they didn't... Pray to God that way, they didn't have faith in that way. Right? They didn't demand or claim that God must save them. But they just said, God is a saving God, and because of that, we will not waver. Now, if you look at the next section, you can see that this faith continues to hold true, isn't it? Because even though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed to God or had great faith in God, seemingly, the situation was lost. It wasn't as if God brought this great thunderstorm, you know, and then the flames went out, or, you know, the fire extinguisher system went off accidentally, and there was no fire anymore. The fire was still there. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar got furious and asked for the flames to be turned up even more. And I think the problem is, as we read the last part of chapter 3, it's very easy for us to read it as something which is unbelievable. You know, you look at some children's cartoon book and you know it's like it's like can you really believe that three people can go into flames and come out and not die you know we're not talking about walking across coals here right we're talking about hot blazing fire but if you look at the end of chapter 3 the second half of chapter 3 it is not written like a legend or a myth it's written like like real life in every way it seems as if this miracle really happened First thing is, you notice that it didn't happen in secret, right? It wasn't just King Nebuchadnezzar who somehow hallucinated that this happened. Look at what it says there in verse 26. When Cedric, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors, even maybe the astrologers who accused them, they crowded around them. Right? It, was, it was done in front of many witnesses. And also, it wasn't as if the fire suddenly looked like it was really hot, but you know, it was just a you know, dying down. Because in verse 22, the fire was so hot and so urgent that the flames had killed the soldiers who who brought Cedric, Meshach, and Abigael even before they went into the blazing furnace. But not only that. If you look at verse 25, why is it when three of them went in, but there were four men walking around, and one which looked like the sun? of the gods. Now, some people might say that's Jesus Christ walking around. There's a Christophany, right? It was actually Jesus walking in there with the three of them, but there's nothing which actually shows it one way or the other. But definitely, the reason we are told this and the reason this is actually happening is because it shows us that it is God who is causing these people to be saved. There's God that actually answered the prayers, and the challenge of King Nebuchadnezzar. But lastly, it's also King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. You see, if you look at um, chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's a very angry man, right? He's always furious with rage. Verse 13, he was furious with rage already. And then verse 19, he's even more furious, and he asked for the blazing furnace to be turned up. But then, in verse twenty-four, he leaps to his feet in amazement, and in verse twenty-nine, he himself says that it is God Himself who is able to save. You see, that's the, the the central idea, the big idea of this passage. The challenge of King Nebuchadnezzar was, who can, which God is able to rescue you from my hand? Well, and the answer is, it is the Lord God of Cedric, Meshach, and Abednego. That is the type of God that they have, and that is the type of God we have. You see, we know that God is able to save because, yes, He brought Israel out of Egypt. Yes, He saved Cedric, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire. But yes, He also saves because we know once and for all He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. You see, I want you to think for a moment, if we, <clears throat> for some reason, uh, got rid of the um, ban here, okay, the ban piece, and we set up this blazing fire, okay, really hot fire, and think for a moment that I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, right, okay, and I demand of you to bow down and worship this idol that I've made, what would you do? Would you would you be like Cedric, Meshach, and Abednego? Would you be willing to say to the powerful king, the ruler of the greatest nation of that time, no, that you wouldn't do so? Would you be willing to go to the flames for God? Would you be willing to? Would you be willing to bow down and serve another idol and give your heart and mind to avoid death and flames? Well, what actually gives us the ability to, to be willing to die and not bow down to the idols of this world? What is able to give us that ability is to know that God is a saving God. See, if you know that God saves, then you will be willing to die for God. See, what is the most famous uh, verse in the whole Bible? Probably John 3.16, right? So we all know this verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now, I'm sure we all know the words of this verse, but do we really believe it in our hearts? Do we really believe that God is a saving God? that God is able to save even to eternal life. Because if we really, really believe that, if we really know that, then we'll be able to stand with Abednego, with Shadrach and Meshach, and say, yes, I would will be willing to die for God. I would not be willing to give my heart and my mind to this world. I will not give my absolute allegiance to the values and the things of this world. So what do you really believe in? Where are you willing to, I guess, draw the line in the sand like, uh, like why I said when it comes to giving your heart and your mind your allegiance to this world? We began the sermon by talking about the right expectation, the right understanding. The right expectation and understanding is that we live in a world which will constantly be demanding your heart and your mind, your allegiance. The only way to resist it is to know that God is a God who saves and He is worth holding on to and resisting the pull of this world. So, last passage, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 2, which uh, Jesus Himself speaks to the churches, which are representative of the churches that we are today. And he says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. See, in the world that we live in, there will be a struggle because the world is a force opposed to the demands of who we are as God's people. And God wants us to know that we need to hold on to who He really is. If you know Him as a God who saves, that He will save you eventually even from judgment and His wrath. Then you will be willing to take a stand and to belong to Him only. To be able to withstand the temptations of this world. To be conformed like the world. To think like the world. To have the values of this world. Every day, in everything we do, in television, in the print media, in movies, whatever, maybe at work, maybe in your family life, you will struggle. There will be times where you will be called and asked to conform and bow down to the idols of this world. But if you really know Jesus as a God who saves, then you will be able to resist that temptation even to the point of death. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that this world will be full of Nebuchadnezzars, constantly seeking to win over our hearts and our minds to pressure us to bow down to its idols. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves that as we know you as God, the God who saves, that we will be willing to resist that pressure even to the point of death, that we will be like Cedric, Meshach and Abednego, where we will trust only in you and defy this world. That dear Father, you would help us to search our hearts even now to see where we have compromised or been tempted to compromise with this world. That we will come back to you and you alone. For truly we have been chosen out of this world. We are in this world but we do not belong to it. And help us to see that we may continue, that we must continue to trust in you so that you will save us to the point of eternal life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.